which is so different than like, you know, violin or piano that has hundreds of years of people being like, you know what works? This. <laughs> so, I th- and I think the banjo, I hope, will will get there. But it's a, it's, it's a complicated thing because the instrument is, is just so much less linear. It's really good at being a banjo and pretty bad at other things. Hello, banjo people. This is your fellow banjo person, Keith Billick, here with the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. Thank you all for joining me. You're all very special to me, but I have to admit, I do have a favorite listener right now, and his name is Leonard Leedy. And the reason Leonard Leedy is so special to me right now is because he chose to be a supporter of the podcast. He went to patreon.com slash banjo podcast and donated money to keep this whole thing running. And I really do appreciate his support. You can support the podcast too by going to that Patreon page. And if you don't care to do that, that's fine too. I still am really happy that you're listening. And also for those of you who are just spreading the word about the podcast, that's some of the best promotion I can possibly get. And I really thank you for that. I also appreciate all of you who have taken the time to email me your thoughts and suggestions and comments about the podcast. Most of them have been... I'll I'll just go ahead and say all of them have been pretty positive about the podcast. But even if you have a, a complaint, if you think something is really awful, feel free to let me know. I'm a banjo player. I have thick skin. I can take that kind of thing. It's all good. Whatever your thoughts are on the podcast, you can express those to me using the email address pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com, and I look forward to hearing from you that way. Today's guest on the podcast is a guy named Wes Corbett, and Wes is a really amazing dude, a really amazing banjo player. He is, in my mind, really advancing and redefining what it means to be a modern banjo player. And what I mean by that is he just tends to have a very broad range of skills on the banjo that he's worked really hard to cultivate and also having a lot of outside influences, even apart from what we would consider the banjo universe, and manages to just filter those all through his banjo and his music. And it really comes out as a very impressive display of skills and musicianship. So I'm really excited to have you hear what he's all about and hear some of his music. Wes gained notoriety by playing with a band called Joy Kills Sorrow, and we actually didn't end up discussing that band very much on this podcast, so I at least wanted to point that out, that he was part of that band, and they had a few really great recordings. Now he plays with the Molly Tuttle Band. Molly is an award-winning guitar player, so that's a really impressive group to see him with as well. And also, he has a project with a hammered dulcimer player named Simon Chrisman, and you'll get to hear him talk quite a bit about um, his relationship with Simon and the music that they're doing. Um, Something that impressed me talking to Wes is how seriously he takes all aspects of his craft. He's obviously very serious about playing. He's literally been working at it his entire life, as you'll hear him uh, talking about. He's really serious about the sound that he gets out of his banjo. He's really serious about producing records. He's really serious about teaching. He taught at the Berklee College of Music for several years, so... There's a, there's a focus with him that I think really comes out in his playing. So I had a great time chatting with him about all aspects. I feel like I could have picked his brain for quite a bit longer about his different influences and his approach to all of this musical stuff that is going on in his head. There is something else about this podcast that I'm noticing while editing it that I hesitate to point out, but I'll just go ahead and come clean with it. I'm really into what Wes is talking about, but you know who I'm not into? It's me. 
there just seemed to be certain points in the interview where I come across as having not too much enthusiasm or energy, and I just don't want uh, people to take that the wrong way as if I'm uh, disinterested in what Wes was saying. I'm actually a, a big fan of his playing, so nothing could be further from the truth. So I'm going to chalk it up to this was at banjo camp, and maybe I was tired or something like that. So that's my excuse. I hope it doesn't bother you too much. And the last thing to mention here before we get started, I'm actually going to let you behind the scenes here of the Picky Fingers Banjo podcast. Um, When I'm setting up for these interviews with these players, there's always a process of getting the microphone set up, getting the levels checked, getting the recording equipment started, all that kind of stuff. And then as soon as I'm ready, you know, I I give some sort of signal like, okay, we're rolling, we're starting now. Uh, With this, I, I started the recorder as I was setting up the microphones and you can hear Wes discussed the proper microphone placement for his banjo and I just thought it was interesting or at least I like hearing that kind of stuff from banjo players so I I included sort of the pre-interview footage that I have you'll hear me placing the microphone it's not necessarily the most interesting thing to listen to if you're not into that but I am so here you go enjoy the podcast with Wes Corbett Usually this side of the banjo sounds better. I don't know how geeky you want to get about this, but... If, if you know that, then I will uh, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, like so... between the bridge and the tailpiece? Or even kind of more... So, like, a, a lot of the time it's here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where I usually go for but it. But this banjo likes something a little higher, but okay. it definitely should be parallel with the head is one thing. Yeah. Cinco is always like... into yep much more wow yeah that's great so much more like prismatic um and that's unique to your banjo you've found or this, this instrument yeah really likes to be mic'd up there which is kind of funny i mean um and it's funny because like basically my hand is like it doesn't in, make sense in between but it, it doesn't it really doesn't matter yeah, yeah. um Yeah, cool. Um, Okay. Ready? Yeah. Cool. We're rolling. Hey, Wes, how are you doing? Hey, I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. So I don't don't know you personally too well, but it's nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to Uh, meet you. Tell me where you're from and how you got into the banjo. Yeah, so I'm originally from a little island across the water from Seattle called Bainbridge Island. Okay. And I was super privileged uh, and lucky enough that when my parents realized that I was musical, they started me on classical piano when I was two and a half. They realized you were musical at age of two. <laughs> my mom always joked and said that, uh, that I came out of the womb humming. Wow. <laughs> uh, and my grandfather on my mom's side uh, was a conductor and classical pianist and trumpet, uh, trumpetist, <laughs> trumpet player. Um, and so I think they also helped out my folks in those early years. You had a lot of embryonic vibrations yeah, happening totally. from, from outside. Well, my mom was a professional modern dancer too, so there was a lot of, a lot of music going on. A lot of arts. A lot of arts, influenced. yeah. And my dad was a professional potter. 
So yeah, that's arts and family. Um, so they started you on classical piano, you said? Yeah, Suzuki classical piano. Did you was, get pretty serious about that? Stick with it? I stuck with it like only because my mom, uh, which I'm now so thankful for, would just like made me stick with it until I heard the banjo. Yeah. And then she lost. The well, that's battle. the that's the oldest story in the book, right? Like the someday you'll thank me for making you take. Piano no, it's lessons. totally true. Yeah, you're living proof. So many, so many arguments. You know, now that I, I just think back and I'm like, wow, what a what a jerk I was being. Yeah, um, what a gift. Yeah. Um. So, so what age was that that you switched to banjo? I switched to banjo after I heard Bela Fleck when I was 14, and I okay. pretty much went cold turkey on the piano. Was that Fleck tones? Um, you know, the first record that I heard was Double Time, the duet the record. Trishka. No, um, it's it's the oh, one that's like a yep. bunch of different duets with different people. Um, yeah, like O'Connor and Shaft. Yeah, and, and, and Tony Hartford. Rice and Hartford. Yeah. yeah, it's cool. It's a cool record. Um, yeah, I used to like, uh, I almost failed geometry because I was... I would wear a hoodie in class and then like, you know, feed, Have my, your headphones feed my headphones up underneath the hoodie. And <laughs> how did you just, how did a 14 year old discover Bela Fleck duet? Yeah. Um, so my folks had a pretty big record collection that, uh, my brother, my older brother, um, who's four and a half years older than me kind of got into listening to, and he found the original, original David Grisman quintet mm-hmm. record. Um, and then I th- was telling one of his friend's dads about it, and that dad burned a bunch of records, like okay. burned a bunch of CDs for Quinn and I to listen to, and one of them was Double Time, yeah. which I, you know, now I know is a bad thing. <laughs> listening oh, to, to burn Yeah, CDs. listening to burn records. But, you know, at the time, I was just so psyched. Um, I'm, I'm sure that somehow or another, Bela Fleck has gotten some of your dollars because of him burning you that CD. So <laughs> totally, yeah. It ended up all right. But um, And then so I started on lessons uh, in Seattle with a guy named Dave Keenan, okay. who is uh, kind of one of the fixtures of the acoustic scene out there. He, he plays, let's see, banjo, guitar, like electric and acoustic, mandolin and fiddle, and writes a lot. He also like edits classical scores for video game music. He's just like wow. a, a really great, musician and was an awesome first teacher um he's an interesting banjo player because he doesn't necessarily play scrug style like note for note mm-hmm. but he uh like his his version of the banjo is just so cool it's like so open and i think you know i kind of started out with that from the get-go with this idea that like it doesn't have to be this set in stone thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and you know, that's kind of like, I think such a great gift a teacher can give a student, you know? Yeah, is the, is the open mind. Yeah. So what did he actually, did he, that being said, was he still starting you off with the role patterns? Yeah. And all of that? Oh, and yeah. No, I mean, I got a really solid foundation in, in like role-based banjo playing, for mm-hmm. sure. It wasn't necessarily like note-for-note note Scruggs style, you know? He's just not the kind of person, because he plays so many other instruments, too, and he kind of plays them all like himself. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, yeah, it, it, it was awesome. The more I think back on that, you know, I think I was just really lucky to have such... Excellent. Teachers. Still influencing you, probably. Yeah, the, the we're friends. We we always hang out. You know, he comes and visits me in Nashville sometimes. Cool. So you were pretty consumed by it. You were. Did you practice quite a bit in those days? A ton. Yes, yeah, so much. I mean, I uh, 
uh, probably three or four hours a day. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, every day. Uh, there was this poor neighbor <laughs> that I just probably like tortured, you know. On the I, island? On the island, yeah, at, at my mom's house. Yeah, just playing along with records and stuff and, you know. I have a few college roommates who could start a support group for that poor neighbor of yours. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Totally. But yeah, I also, um, my, my, on my dad's side, my dad's oldest brother, Fred, is also a banjo player. He was actually... Um, he lived in the area? He lived in Oregon. Yeah, he lived like in southern Oregon. He was the guitar player and tenor singer for this like folk revival band called the Brandywine Singers. Okay. That basically they were doing really, really well. And then the Beatles played on Ed Sullivan and their careers tanked like almost wow. overnight. But they oh, were like yeah. selling out college auditoriums. You know, they were doing really, really well. Um, but Fred is a really great banjo player and bass player and guitar player and singer. So at, whenever um, you'd run into him. Yeah, he would show me some stuff. And yeah. So who were your other influences? Obviously, you probably stuck with. Bela a bit did you dive deep into the bluegrass guys eventually yeah I mean at first you know coming from not not being steeped in the bluegrass world Mm -hmm. at all I mean the music that I really grew up listening to was like classical music and then like the Beatles James Taylor and Jackson Brown you know like that's what was where your parents were yeah that's like what was playing around the house you know so like at first especially bluegrass vocals was really jarring for me I was just like why they singing like that, yeah. you know? But now I love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah. But it took me a while. You know, I think you, you have that, that moment when you, or at least for me, when I realized, like, wait, if I want to sound like Bela or Gnome or Jens or any of the, like, really amazing modern banjo players, Tony Trishka, I have to be a really good Scruggs-style player. You know, like, the, those two things are, they are inseparable, would you would you tell people that these days, even if they are convinced that they never want to be in a bluegrass band? Yes, and they hate that music, but they just want to, yeah, play like Trishka. You would still recommend that they? Oh, certainly, have that if they want to play like Trishka. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe that's a bad I mean, example. Maybe more more Jens or uh, yeah, or, or Noam or yeah. I mean, it's I I think I think of it as like the classical technique of of three finger banjo. There's just something about like. The tone production and timing aspect of it, you just don't get anywhere else. Like, you can't put your right hand through its paces any other way. Yeah, it's almost like the, the grammar where any, mm. anything you're saying doesn't make as much sense if, yeah. you, if you don't have a, a grammar system. Right, right. That's, that's tying it all together. Yeah, I, I think of it as like it, things sound anemic. Yeah, but. there's there's something not not there that should be mm-hmm. so what happened then when did you start playing with people when did you start developing your own style and what yeah what kind of things did you do to i mean you know explore that uh i actually wrote a tune so you know the, the first tune i learned was cripple creek okay. from dave and i i came back a week later having like you know um having it pretty well down you know i, I it's like i'd played a lot of music so practicing that for a week i could i could play it pretty well you it's know, no different than your piano yeah practice. well i mean it's like the mechanics of it were different obviously at at first but i think i just like i had the tools to understand how to practice well that's important yeah and so like i came back and i had learned cripple creek and like could play it fairly competently um 
and had also written a tune. I, I wish I could remember what the <laughs> tune was, but I had written a tune. I think I was just so excited about the the freedom of the banjo coming from the classical world. Interesting. You know, where like I can just write a tune on this. Like I can do whatever I want, you know? Like it, it was so freeing. Were you aware of improvisation? Or was that something that you knew that I mean, yeah, was but there? yeah, but I I didn't know how to improvise at all. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because now like if all the I knew a little bit of music theory on on piano, but sure. like when I think music theory in my head, it's all banjo. It's not piano. I oh, think most people assume that, like, I, that you know, if I'm thinking scales and chords and stuff, it's all piano in my head. It's totally not because, like, I learned to improvise on the banjo, so it's all banjo for better or worse. I mean, the it's all the same notes, right? Yeah, they're, they're still there. It still yeah, works. Yeah. So, so what was the next thing that happened? Somehow you you ended up. Did you did you go to school out east? I know you ended up out in the Boston area. Right. Well, so the first thing that happened was that I met Simon Chrisman, who is this just like epic hammered dulcimer player. He like transcends that instrument. Um, and he's like six years older than me. So we never, he, but he grew up on Bainbridge Island. We, oh, no kidding. And so he was 20 when I was 14. Right. And I went and saw Bill Frizzell and Danny Barnes, that band, that mm-hmm. iteration of the Bill Frizzell band, play on Bainbridge. And Simon opened for them solo. Solo. Yeah, okay. just like solo on the dulcimer. Um, and then I ran into him at this place called the Veggie House, which is a, a vegetarian Vietnamese restaurant. And, uh, and he gave me his business card, which is so funny now thinking back on on Simon even having business cards. <laughs> it doesn't seem to fit his no, character. No, no. I mean, but, uh, and then we got together and, and like, you know, he was uh, way better than I was when, when I first started playing. This is still playing. when you're 14, 15. This is when I was 14. I had yeah. been playing banjo for like six months or something and mm-hmm. then I met Simon, you know, and, and he like got together with me and I think he was just psyched to like have somebody to play with, you know, who was a young person and, and so we kind of, started playing more and more together. We would play like three or four days a week for an hour or two. Wow. Um, and kind of created this whole language together before we knew that that, that like five-string banjo and hammered dulcimer was like a really weird thing. Yeah, you shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't <laughs> be able to should, do that. That we shouldn't, yeah, totally. Um, and that continues to this day. We actually just released a duo record. I, I own that, and I was going to bring it up. Now would be a good time, I guess. That's, sure. That's some, it's, it's really funny the way that you explain this because that's what i was going to say is that the the intricacies of some of the playing i can't tell if it's improvised or not Mm -hmm. um and that's i think part of the beauty of it is that these things seem to happen just little timing changes and, and arrangements that seem they seem perfect enough that they must be arranged but if all of it was truly arranged then it would have taken forever for you guys to actually figure all that out well, and the only explanation left is that you guys have spent so much time. We've spent so together. much time.
I think working up that kind of material with anyone else, almost anyone else, w- would have taken twice as long easily. But we just are, we kind of have this like mind meld thing going on. So yeah, it's, it's, I think there are, you know, just, just in the same way that like, I don't know, there's maybe just a, a handful of people like in, in romantic relationships that you, that you form like a, a really, really tight bond with in your life, you know, um, or maybe just one person. I don't know. I think there's only a few of those people musically too. And, and Simon is, is definitely one of them. That's really interesting. Um, so just to put a bow on that, what's that, what's that new recording called? I can't remember. It's just self-titled. It's, it's called Simon Chrisman and Wes Corbett. Okay. Yeah. And that just yeah. came out a, a week or two ago. We're, yeah. we're talking right now in early June. Mm-hmm. Not sure when people will be listening to this, but sure. But it's out there, and it's a hammer dulcimer and banjo duet, and it's it's really fascinating stuff. So yeah, keep keep going. So who did you end up? Yeah, so, to play with. Well, so I, I I hung with Simon for a couple of years, and then went to Wintergrass, which was kind of my hometown festival. Which right. again, I'm super lucky because that's an amazing festival. Yep. I mean, like they their lineup is is really diverse. You know, like they would hire like killing trad bluegrass bands, and then a bunch of other things I'd never heard of. And there, when I was jamming, I met uh, Jake Jolliffe, Alex Hargraves. I think that's... Well, at, you know what it was is that this band called Pupville was playing there mm-hmm. one year, which is sort of a basically a kid's band that David Grisman put together for okay. his son Sam to play bass in. Um, and that was Sam... Sam Grisman, uh, Jake Jolliffe, Frankie Nagel, who was a really amazing banjo player and singer. I haven't really heard from her in a long time. Okay. Alex Hargraves on fiddle and this guy named Ian Fleming from Montana on okay. guitar, um, who is an engineer somewhere now. But a bunch um, of hot shots. Yeah, everybody was so good. Yeah. And, and I met all those guys and um, I was a little older than them. I was like a few years, like I'm two years older than Jake. And but I kind of you know kicked around with them that wintergrass and and jammed a bunch in one of the stairwells, yeah. <laughs> and that kind of kicked the whole thing off, you know. I mean the the bluegrass scene or acoustic scene, whatever you want to call it, is is I think for every generation um, a pretty close knit thing, you know, at least regionally. Because like through them, I met like Sarah Jarose and Dominic Leslie and um, all kinds of other great pickers yeah there's um, a there's a web and yeah and connect. and it all kind of came from going to festivals together when we were kids and and you know like our parents would just kind of let us do whatever yeah that's amazing like my dad would just drop me off at wintergrass yeah that's almost <laughs> incredible to even think about at this point but right right good good thing he did yeah so um and then i graduated from high school and um Decided that I would try to go to college for banjo. I ended up going to Cal Arts in Valencia for a year as a banjo player, but they didn't have a banjo program. And it, it, it's an amazing school, facilities, teachers, everything. But it, it, it just felt like I kind of already knew what I wanted to be and mm-hmm. what, where I wanted to be. And that school, it was really expensive. And like none of my old school like none of my like high school picking buddies were anywhere near there and kind so, of a lonely yeah situation. it kind of was a weird situation so i ended up leaving and i moved home for like nine months and worked the only real job i've ever had which was uh working in a bakery and then uh saved up money 
moved to Boston kind of on a whim, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, uh, I had met Chris Eldridge and Chris Pandolfi, and they tipped me off that they were moving to Nashville to start the String Dusters. And basically, so, like, I moved maybe a month after Pandolfi left Boston. Um, Having just graduated from Berkeley. Yeah, yeah, and he had been, like, you know, teaching and gigging a lot. So I, like, actually moved at 19, I think, with gigs on the books to Boston. Basically filling in for him. Yeah. Or, or not filling in, but picking Right, kind of just picking up, behind. yeah, like picking up the, you know, the hole in the, in the scene there that he had been filling. Um which is a really lucky thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was so funny. Actually, I played some like, what was it? Some, some like private party the first week that I moved there, <laughs> and it was like out on the Cape, and it was like there's lobster everywhere, and like it's some super expensive wow. private party, and and we each got paid like seven or eight hundred dollars. Wow. Yeah. Um, and you know, I was like. I just I just need to get like one or two of these a month and I'll be set. Yeah, you know, I had no idea what I was doing. Like, um, I didn't. You know, of course, didn't get one another gig like that for like two years. <laughs> Take them when you can. <laughs> right, but yeah. Um, so and uh, at that point, I had met Tristan and Tashina Claridge. Okay. Um, and we had started this band called the Bee Eaters mm-hmm. with Simon, and it's essentially yeah. That- how did Simon get out there too? Um, the whole band moved out to Boston eventually. Kind of the, the scene was exploding because Berkeley had started allowing banjo and mandolin players to come, and NEC had started accepting some people too. Um, Sarah Jarose went to NEC. Uh, let's see who else. Um, I, I mean, a bunch of other people. Yeah, no, but like at, Bridget at Carney. Point, um, yeah, basically, like there's just a whole flock of acoustic yeah. players. Right. And and so it it sort of came to this apex um where it was like almost every single music friend I'd ever made was living in Boston, which was an, an incredible thing. And during that time, this band called the Bee Eaters was rehearsing like crazy. Mm-hmm. Um we had made one record that we had rehearsed for quite a bit um that Daryl Anger produced and engineered. Yeah. And that one's just self-titled. Okay. Uh, they might be a little hard to find, these records. But, and then um, another one uh, th- that was the last thing I did with the band in 2010 called Odd Fellows Road that I, I'm still to this day like really proud of. Um, which That was the first time I met this really amazing engineer named Dave Cinco, too. He, he okay. engineered that record. Yeah, um, and he, of course, is... Why don't, why don't you give his brief <laughs> credentials? Sure. I mean, yeah, so he has been in the audio engineering world since the, like, late 80s, early 90s. He cut his teeth uh, working pop country stuff okay. um, in Nashville and, you know, kind of quickly rose to being one of, the, one of the people that the sort of greater bluegrass and acoustic scene realized that he, he, he just has this, like, sensitivity to what's going on musically and uh and from an engineering side that's kind of unparalleled like working with him is like having another band member wow and he actually engineered the the record uh that simon and i just made too okay um and mixed it and mastered it yeah (laughs) um and i've had the the luck of uh producing a couple records and and uh the latest one with front country uh we mixed that record together okay um, that's an incredible record too. Oh, thanks. I remember um, Jeremy Darrow, the 
the bass player for Front Country, I think it was at Midwest Banjo Camp a couple of years ago, mm. was coming to me just beaming about this new recording that they were making and had really great things to to say about you. It seemed like oh, you cool. made a, a big difference for them. That was such a fun session. I mean, it was um, 10 days in a really beautiful studio in Oakland and, um, you know, kind of like all the all the gear you could ever want or need. Was that um, your first stab at producing? Yeah, producing a record start to finish. And, okay. uh, you know, I mean, I, I guess the, the thing that's sort of complicated about it is like I – had been really involved in in Bee Eaters records, you know, in terms of, like, arranging things. I'm not saying I, I arranged everything myself, but, like, I wrote a lot of that material and, like, we arranged it all as a band. So, like, I've I've been a lot more than just, like, a, a gun for hire mm-hmm. in, my tip, like, in my typical career, you yeah. know? Um, so it was a natural thing to happen. Yeah, yeah. And like the last, I mean, we haven't even talked about Joy Kill Sorrow yet, I guess. Um, yeah. the, the last record that we made with Joy Kill Sorrow uh, was self-produced. And I think it's by far our best. Okay. Um, you know, and, and I really started to pay attention to like signal chains on things and, and how things are, you know, how it's all going in and, and like what's affecting people's performances. And I, I really started to pay attention to that during that session. So what, um, if, if you have a way of encapsulating that in any effective way, so let's take the Front Country Project. What were the types of things that you contributed to that that you sure. think made it a successful project? Well, I mean, the, you know, uh, for one thing, it's like I, I just try to pick musicians that I think are really great yeah. <laughs> to work with. That does but, um But... I had some arrangement ideas on some things, maybe not like uh, on some things that they sent me, some demos they sent me. It was basically like, cool, that sounds great. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And and then some things that I kind of helped them deconstruct and put back together. And I think that for me, working with different producers, you know, over, over the course of my career so far, the thing that's really stuck with me um, pros and cons of of somebody as a producer that I like working with is somebody who doesn't talk if they don't have something to say. They're not trying to feel like they're earning, they need to earn their yeah. Well, they're Yeah, or by. like they're, they're, or that they're bringing their ego into putting their sort of sound stamp on a record at the cost of of where the music maybe should actually go. Okay. Um, and, and so for me, it was kind of just like, you know what? I, I just want to help people make records that sound good. Uh-huh. Like I want people, I want to help people get along. I want to help tones happen in a, in like a really great way. Um, we spent a whole day on tones with front country the whole first wow. day. Um, and you know, honestly, I think that in the, in the acoustic world, at least, that's a, the the best possible use of your time in the studio, because like if you walk into the control room and are listening back to something, and the stereo image is already functioning, right? As in like there aren't conflicts between instruments that don't exist acoustically. Yeah, you're in a really good place. Yeah. Whereas if you're like, oh, we'll fix it in mix. That, I hate that. I hate, I that, hate that staying. Because like all you're doing is causing problems that you're just going to be diving down the endless digital rabbit hole through mixing and mastering. Mm-hmm. Just like get it right 
from get the get go. Right. Yep. And like not only will playback in in the control room sound better, but everybody's headphones sound amazing. Yeah. You know, like which means that people make more inspiring to listen to. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a cumulative It's effect. a very cyclical thing. Yeah. So, um I mean, I think that's a huge a huge portion of it is like trying to factor my own ego out of it as much as possible. And yeah, staying out of the way mm-hmm. unless like unless you need to be there. <laughs> yeah. Being as objective as possible and yeah, and honest at the same time. Sure. So we haven't actually talked a whole lot about your actual playing. Sure. What, what types of things did you work on that, I mean, by the time you're working on the beat eaters and everything, you, you were pretty established in terms of, of how you play. Yeah. And um, what types of things did you work on to, to get there? What, what did you consider your influences? And Sure. Uh, I mean, I listened to a ton of Bela and definitely a lot of, like, young gnome. And then it also kind of started working my way backwards towards trad banjo playing by that yeah. point. You know, and I think that the, the, like, classical piano thing can't, that influence can't really be undone. <laughs> so yeah. there's so much of the Bee Eaters music that, that's almost like chamber music, really, mm-hmm. that, you know, is very, the way I'm playing banjo is very piano-y, honestly. But in terms of, like, how I got there, I mean... I was trying to figure out ways both kind of quarterly and scalarly to map the instrument um, because there really weren't resources for that yet. I mean, there still aren't a whole lot of them, so but there's way more now than there, than there were when I was 21. Yeah. Um, just in terms of like understanding how to navigate the fingerboard in a bunch of different keys and like uh, – play passages uh, like melodic passages that that scale you know almost two octaves or something like uh, that mm-hmm. you can't use open strings to do <laughs> yeah you know i mean and it was all stuff that i was just kind of flying by the seat of my pants like i guess i'll do it like this you know I, and it's a funny thing because there's just there's no established pedagogy for any of it, which right. is so different than like you know violin or piano that has hundreds of years of people being like, you know what works? This. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I th- and I think the banjo, I hope, will will get there. But it's a it's it's a complicated thing because the instrument is is just so much less linear as well. It's really good at being a banjo and pretty bad at other things yeah the the strings are at weird intervals right and i think the range of the whole thing is is fairly compact compared to most other instruments right yeah it's yeah yeah i mean but that asymmetry is sort of what makes it so cool at the same time right you you're hearing the limitations and that's the the character of it right so what is this banjo that you're playing this is a really cool looking instrument um i am playing a Hawthorne top tension, which is basically a, a copy of an RB7. Right. Um, it has so a, is this a maple? Yeah, it's all maple. Um, has like a you know tiny bit of a radius on it. I forget what actual. I, I, okay. we're, we're getting real banjo nerdy here, but uh, and then let's see. Uh, it has a Huber ring. I, for, I actually forget what kind of rim it has in it. <laughs> what a Remo head. Uh, I've been digging the Deering Smile Bridge okay. on, on this banjo. Um, it, it definitely. Open some stuff up. Uh, you noticed a difference with that? I did. I did. So if you, so, you have a well. You said a Huber ring and some sort of 
rim. What? Who is Hawthorne? Is he just the one who made the neck? And you did you piece this thing together? No, they made this instrument for me. Um, they're the only folks who are manufacturing top tension parts in the states right now. Wow. Um, and yeah, so they they make really great stuff. Um, yeah, I've I've had this for maybe a little over a year now, and I've played it like pretty much exclusively since. Okay. There's something really special uh, that top tensions can do in terms of uh, sustain, I think is really what it, it – I mean, it's like there's a tonal difference too. Like more a, sustain, you think? Yeah, more sustain um, and typically like more of kind of like a pop in the mid and low end of, of what banjos produce. Like, um, I, you know, uh, from a frequency response – yeah, uh, spectrum where we're talking like one and two hundred okay. is is sort of behind every single note you play. Yep. it's kind of like if you you know like uh, like that sound like if you hit your your fist into your hand. It's amazing that you say that because I always described it as being the knock. Mm-hmm. I, I look for the knock. You want to? It's it's the frequency that taps your chest when the back of the resonator. <laughs> yeah, is, um, totally is is leaning against your body. Sure, sure. Um, and that's a good sign when it has that. Yeah. What are your other uh, like live preferences? It seems like you're you're into microphones and things, and so am I. So talk about what you yeah. use and what you do for a live setup. Yeah. So I mean, in the last couple of years, um, I guess we kind of skipped over playing with Joy Kilsar. I played with this band yeah, called Joy Kilsar, we, and we yeah. toured a lot. I toured. Right. You know, that's the, some of the most touring I ever did, and uh, toured internationally. We played on Prairie Home Companion, released three records that I was on. Um, and that was a band with, uh, with the aforementioned Jake. Yeah, Jake Jolliffe, Bridget Carney, um, who's the bass player for Lake Street Dive, uh, Emma Beaton, and Matt Arcara, who is a, a Winfield champion. Yeah. Um, and Emma is an amazing singer. Um, yeah, so I toured with that band a lot. And that, that's like, I kind of like satiated my like classical banjo tooth with the Bee Eaters. And then I've also like always loved pop music. And Joy Kilsar was very pop-influenced. Yeah. And then in the last, like, three years, I've been playing with Molly Tuttle. Yeah. um, Which has been super fun. And uh, this banjo really opened up some cool stuff playing with Molly because there's there's some sort of, like, you know, I don't know, um, Allison Krauss and Union Station-type material, like slower stuff in particular. Yeah. That like a lot of other bands would probably have somebody play dobro or or you know something with more sustain like yeah. or just have me play guitar, um, but Molly's always let me just play banjo and you know um, I think one thing that people like about playing with me is that I'm maybe a little more I don't know sensitive to what's going on like in a, in a in a global ensemble sense yeah. than than some other players. So like playing really, really quiet, slow material is actually kind of my favorite thing to do on the wow. banjo. Interesting. Um so getting to do that with Molly has been so fun. And and this and that's banjo where the sustain comes Yeah, in. it's so nice. Like you can you, on this banjo and Tom Tension's kind of in general, like you can move your right hand like all the way up to basically to the neck. Mm-hmm. And and it won't like wimp out it'll just get fatter wow what other gear do you use oh right yeah we were talking about sorry that's okay (laughs) um so with molly i've been playing through a 214 c yeah uh which is the sort of cheaper version of a 414 it doesn't have any pattern selection um and i really like that microphone um 
I think for whatever reason, like for my right hand, you know, like for my voice, it does what I really want a microphone to do. And amazingly enough, it's a large diaphragm microphone. It's never fed back. Well, I was just going to yeah. ask if that actually works for most situations. It's never fed. Like guitar, like Molly's guitar mic is is going to feed back like 10 times faster than than this will. Wow. It's an interesting, I mean, I think it's a, it's a combination of that uh, it's trans, what, transducerless, so it, it, it's super high output. And, uh, and then... It'd be transformerless. Yeah, I think sorry, is what sorry, you're, yeah. yeah. Sorry, it's been, I've already been teaching <laughs> <laughs> transformerless. So it's super high output. So it's really easy for sound guys to just crank it. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it is way tighter, at least uh, to, my, to my experience, than a typical large diaphragm would be. Which mostly... Those can usually pick up an entire stage of people. Totally, yeah. But um, this this is like feels like it's less than ninety. Okay. Um, and so and like uh, monitors are typically pretty quiet on stage with mm-hmm. Molly too, um, which is helpful. I mean, I'm sure if I was like playing with a really loud band, it, it would be a nightmare. Or drums or something. Yeah, like yeah. But um, it's been amazing. Yeah, it's great. It it has a a really nice proximity boost when you get like really close. So playing the the slow stuff that I was talking about, like if you get, you know, if you put the banjo like what, I don't know, like An two, inch or something. two inches yeah. from the diaphragm or it, it it's like the whole, it just gets huge. Yeah. That yeah. would make sense from a from a ultra geeky standpoint, the more directional a microphone is, the more pronounced that proximity effect to be so the mm. fact that you think it's more focused actually makes sense with the fact that yeah yeah that it does cool accentuate those uh lower frequencies yeah yeah and yeah. we just lost everybody <laughs> <laughs> i've also um proximity effect y'all look it up <laughs> i also really like I've, with shows with simon um i've been using what is it auto audio technica pro 35 clip-on mic yeah and I had been running it through a headway preamp, which I've had for a long time, which is uh, this English preamp company. Okay. Um, but it, it finally died on me, and I'm actually oh. pre, like, live preamp-less right now. I'm, I'm going to get a Felix sometime soon. Yep. I mean, that's sort of become the industry standard. Um, I don't quite need one right now. You know? like, uh, so I've just been running the, that clip-on mic straight to the house and... Um, they're pretty amazing. I mean, they typically uh, we just leave it flat, mm-hmm. and that and that works. Yeah, and you don't miss anything by not being able to not with adjust Simon. your dynamics in and out of the. It wouldn't work with Molly, but with Simon, I mean, we are so like if you put uh, just one microphone in front of us, it's pretty balanced. Like I, we've worked really hard on on keeping the dynamics focused how to blend and stay out of yeah. each other's way and... yeah yeah so like um it works just fine and simon i mean is like one of the most um you know what i really think of it, it he's like one of the most generous musicians i've ever met in terms of like when you're playing with him uh it he just makes you sound better you know, so like playing with a microphone where like I can't step into something and get louder, or step away and get softer. Um, playing with him, it it doesn't matter. Yeah, he's not he, a he's, he's just listening. You know, he's, and it sounds like you try to approach it the same way too. For sure, for yeah, sure. That's that's a good combination. Yeah, um, we haven't actually talked too much about 
actual playing. How so? For anyone unfamiliar with your playing style, do you have a way that you characterize it? I mean, to me, it's it's very it's a very fluid mix of all of all of our standard right styles that we know about the scrugs, the melodics, the yeah, uh, the single strings. I mean, I think I have just been conscious of wanting to take all of those different ways of of thinking about the banjo and and just turning it into one voice. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, most recently a lot of that has just been from like learning fiddle tunes actually, you know, and and learning them in both octaves. Um okay. And like doing them almost always in like blended single string and melodic style. Um is that what you find yourself practicing? Most often? I mean, what I find myself practicing most often is the material that I have to learn. Whatever the next <laughs> yeah. day's gig To be totally requires. honest. Yeah, I mean, people, you know, like, students ask me that, and I, I always struggle with, like, do I give them the honest answer, or do I give them the, the you know, because, like, the reality is, like, I am on tour a lot, and then, like, I am typically doing other other stuff when I'm not playing with Molly or Simon, you know, if I'm home in Nashville be doing a recording session or or playing a gig and get the station in and so i'm like constantly learning material and you play with a lot of yeah different combinations of people right right always complicate it's it's great but it complicates things in, in another way totally but if if i'm gonna yeah if i'm gonna sit down and and practice i'll i'll probably warm up with the metronome for a little while sometimes just my right hand like especially sort of evening out rhythmic disparities between switching between uh single string and roll bass stuff so how do you actually practice that you'll you'll play a roll and then go what right into a yeah a single string yeah pattern? yeah just like keep the eighth notes going and make sure it's all really locked into the grid interesting and then uh you know i might play some scales <laughs> i wish i had like a i'm like i've never been one of those players that has like a I like, you know, I do this for 15 minutes and this for 15 minutes. I've like never been that organized in any aspect of my life, um, except when someone's paying me to produce a record. <laughs> but when it counts. Yeah, but like, yeah, I, you know, um, and then learning something new is almost always the best catalyst for me to like get excited about the instrument. Learning a new tune or like transcribing a solo, even if it even if I only make it through like a lot of the time, I only make it through like half the solo or something. Mm-hmm. And then I'll just like get too excited about some new stuff that I've learned and I'll like figure out how to make a closed position and then like, you know, maybe cycle it through the circle of fourths or fifths, uh, so I can play it in, you know, in every key. Um Wow. So yeah, usually for me, it's like these days when I'm practicing, I'm I'm just looking for like things to steal, <laughs> and then like and then you know incorporate into my own voice. Almost everyone I've talked to has said some version of that yeah. when talking about their own style, about how it's just it's just a, a grab bag of little snippets that you've learned everywhere, sure, and have smuggled into people's ears by playing it yourself yeah so maybe what you were just saying about um what did you just say you learned a fiddle tune then you learn it in a close position and then you cycle it through the fourths and then you learn it single string and <laughs> yeah i mean i i usually uh it's more like a lick you know like taking a lick and and figuring out why it's functioning the way it is and then and then uh using it on banjo in a, in a bunch of different ways like and then you know some of that stuff can also be used compositionally too yeah 
Yeah, I mean, let's see. So, like, uh, the first track of, off the new record with Simon. Actually, you know what? No, let, let's, I'll, I'll do this one called Ostrich Blues. Okay. Um, that's super, like, thematic, kind of. So, I, I, this tune just kind of poured out of the banjo after I had spent an afternoon playing along with um, Molly and Balafon players on YouTube. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I actually played in between. I, What's I guess a bal- Balafon. It's like it's a it's like a West African marimba, basically. Oh, okay. yeah. So like wood keys that yep. you hit with mallets. Gotcha. Um, and uh, I just have always really loved West African music. I actually sort of accidentally worked my way to the banjo, uh, sort of tertiarily through uh, learning West African percussion and then also some kora. In between, you like, play some Cora. I don't anymore. Wow. I have one. I built one. Um, the, yeah. <laughs> How do you build a Cora? Uh, so the the guy that ended up being my teacher, this guy named Jeff Badoni, um, is actually like one of the best Cora builders in the world. Tumani Diabate plays one of his Coras. Yeah, incredible. <laughs> so uh, as a as a senior project, I convinced my school to let me uh, build a Cora with Jeff. So you so you did it and you still own it. And you I do know some. Uh, I, it's been so long, um, but I, you know, I, I that's definitely in there in my playing. Like wow. it, like that, you know, that approach to rhythm is is in there. Not I'm not saying I'm like super deep on on trad Malian music, but um, you know, I spent a few years studying it and was really excited about it. Have you ever transcribed any of that to banjo, or do you use any of? <sighs> I mean, the chorus stuff is like sort of impossible because the chorus stuff is so much about having like a walking bass line mm-hmm. and then a mid-range line and then improvising on top of that. Yeah. And it's uh, it's kind of just not – it's like I, I guess it's, it's so frustrating on the banjo to try to do that, but um, it, I it, haven't really. At least those melody lines at times seem possible. I, yeah. I don't oh, – The melody lines do, yeah. I think it's like – but for me – I wish that it's like if I'm going to play that, I would want to just play it on Cora. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like those sorts of things like soak into your playing, whether or not you're consciously adapting them to banjo or not. I agree. They're in there. It, so like it, you know, and if they're in there, they'll come out. Right. Somehow. Like you know, like I would a hundred percent say like if if there's a workshop happening on like a trad Malian percussion or something where you live, like go to it. And don't okay. worry about, like, trying to do it on the banjo. Just go to it and, mm-hmm. like, have fun playing those instruments and, like, try to understand what's happening. And I guarantee it will, like, open something new on the banjo, whether or not you're being super purposeful about it or not. Yeah. So um, for you, it opened up Ostrich Blues? Ostrich is that, is that Blues. Yeah, that's what it's called. And Simon takes this, like, just killing solo on this. But um, So this but, yeah. is on the new record? This is on the new record. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. 
That's really cool. I have a secret lifelong dream, or I guess not even so secret, but I have a lifelong <laughs> fantasy of playing banjo in like a, an Afro pop band. So oh, yeah, that'd be anything rad. that has those influences is, it, it gets me <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So everyone should have enjoyed that. If you want to hear the ripping hammered dulcimer solo, <laughs> unfortunately so we don't have Simon here, but you'll, you'll have to go check out the, the new recording. And I was actually listening to it on the way here. Oh, nice. And it, yeah, it's really cool. Definitely unlike anything I've, uh, I've heard. So any, any banjo fans, this is something new to listen to. How do people find out about you online? Yeah. So, I mean, I have a website. It's wescorbett.com. Um, I also teach online and in person. Um, all the all the info you need for that is on the website. Westcorbett.com. Yep. And they can find the, the Hammered Dulcimer album there. Yes, they can. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or all the usual places, too. You know, um, iTunes. Yeah. Apple Music. The, the music places. Yeah, the music places. <laughs> Google yeah. knows. Yeah. It can tell you. Okay. Hey, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time, Wes. Of course. It's been a pleasure yeah. talking to you. Yeah, thanks for Good luck me. for the rest of the weekend. Thanks, man. And that's all for this episode, folks. Thanks for listening to the conversation with Wes Corbett. You can email the show at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. Support the show at patreon.com slash banjopodcast or just by subscribing and rating and telling all your friends about it. That all helps a ton and I really thank you for that. So this is Keith Billick over and out. See you next time. Bye.